Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. And it seems like only about a half a dozen of you had. And uh, today, I'm going to conduct a similar poll, but I think I'm going to get a bit more of a robust response than last time. How many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? Just as I suspected, okay. How many of you have actually read at least one of the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia? As I suspected. How many of you have read all seven? All right, okay, I am with the right group of people. Now, of course, probably everyone has read or at least heard of the central story of the book, which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a very thinly disguised allegory which points to the gospel. However, as most of you probably know, chronologically, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is not the first book in the series. It's actually the second. Chronologically, the order of the stories is as follows. The Magician's Nephew, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Horse and His Boy, Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Silver Chair, and The Last Battle. Okay. Now, as most of you know, all seven of the books are worth reading, but my personal favorite is The Silver Chair. It's the story where Aslan the Lion sends two children, Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole, out of our world and into Narnia on a mission to rescue Prince Rillian. Why does Prince Rillian need rescuing? Well, it seems he's been taken captive and put under the enchantment of an evil witch. And except during a narrow window each evening, Rillian's enchantment causes him to forget his history, who he is and who he was. And during this brief moment of nightly sanity, the evil witch has him securely bound to a silver chair so he can't get away. The silver chair and the witch's realm are in a place called Underworld, far below the surface of the land of Narnia. Eustace and Jill are accompanied on their rescue mission by Puddleglum. Oh, my favorite character, I love him. He's a melancholic, delightfully pessimistic, but very faithful creature known as a marsh wiggle. After a series of dangerous and nearly fatal missteps, the three of them somehow manage to stumble into the underworld where Prince Rillian is being kept prisoner. They happen to be there during one of the windows of his windows of sanity when he is tied to the silver chair and they actually free him. Their mission seems accomplished, but there's still the problem of getting out of the underworld and back into Narnia. They are confronted by the witch who, with the help of an incantation, she starts a fire with some, I don't know what she's burning, but it puts them under some type of enchantment and she's strumming on some fiddle or something, and it puts them into a very sleepy fog. And during that sleepy fog, she tries to get them to forget where they came from and where they are going. That is the land of Narnia above. The following dialogue is one of my favorites in the whole series of the Chronicles of Narnia. They say, they're mentioning if they want to go to Narnia, and the witch says, Narnia, she said, Narnia. I've often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. 
Dear Prince, you are very thick. There's no land called Narnia. Yes, there is, though, ma'am, said Puddleglum. You see, I happen to have lived there all of my life. Indeed, said the witch. Tell me, I pray, where that country is. Up there, said Puddleglum, stoutly, pointing overhead. I, I don't know exactly where. How, said the queen, with a kind, soft, musical laugh, is there a country up among the stones and mortar on the roof? No, said Puddleglum, struggling a little to get his breath. It's an overworld. And what or where, pray, is this? How do you call it? Overworld? Oh, don't be silly, said Scrub, who was fighting hard against the enchantment of the sweet smell and thrumming, as if you didn't know. It's up above, where you can see the sky and the sun and the stars. Why, you've been to yourself. We met you there. I cry your mercy, little brother, laughed the witch. You couldn't have heard a lovelier laugh. I have no memory of that meeting. But we often meet our friends in strange places when we dream. And unless all dreams are alike, you must not ask them to remember it. Madam, said the prince sternly, I have told your grace that I am the king's son in Narnia. And shall be their friend, said the witch with a humoring voice, as if she was humoring a child. Shall be king of many imagined lands in thy fancies. We've been there too, snapped Jill. She was very angry because she could feel the enchantment getting a hold of her every moment. But of course, the very fact that she could still feel it showed that it had not fully worked. And thou art queen of Narnia too, I doubt not, pretty one, said the witch in the same coaxing, half-mocking voice. I'm nothing of the sort, said Jill, stamping her foot. We come from another world. Why, this is a prettier game than the others, said the witch. Tell us, little maid, where is this other world? What ships and chariots go between it and ours? Now, good old Puddleglum, Puddleglum was still fighting hard. I don't know rightly what you mean by a world, he said, talking like a man who hasn't enough air. But you can play that fiddle till your fingers drop off, and still you won't make me forget Narnia and the whole overland, too. We'll never see it again, I shouldn't wonder. You may have blotted it out and turned it dark like this for all I know. Nothing more likely. But I know I was there once. I've seen the sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea in the morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. Puddleglum's words had a very rousing effect. The other three all breathed again and looked at one another like people newly awaked. Now you might be asking me what on earth that could possibly have to do with today's passage in Nehemiah 7. Well, it won't be immediately obvious, but keep that in mind and bear with me. Let's now turn to Nehemiah 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. 
for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then God had put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the peoples to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity, those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mishpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, Bena. Oh no. Isn't this the same long list of names that I preached back from in February in Ezra 2? And didn't I say back then that it was an identical list and I sure hoped that I wouldn't have to preach that sermon? I think I did. Now, if you want to hear the entire list of names read, you're going to have to ask Adam. <laughs> Let me assure you that it is the same list. It has some minor variations, not many, but enough variations for Bible commentators to have spilled tons of ink trying to account for the differences. Let me skip down to verse 66 where it starts to give the totals. Verse 66. The, soul, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And their donkeys, 6,700. 120. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now, why did Nehemiah pull out and review the list of people who came back to Jerusalem from Ezra 2? They came back a couple of generations prior. Before I get into that, let me go ahead and give you the main three points of the sermon, because they applied to the people in Nehemiah's day, and they apply just as much to us. Point one is, despite much progress, there is still much work to do. Despite much progress, there's still much work to do. Point two. 
we must remember our history, where we came from and where we are going. We must remember our history, where we came from and where we are going. And point three, while the work continues, there is much sacrifice and much joy. While the work continues, there's much sacrifice and there is much joy. Okay, point one, despite much progress, there's still much work to do. So a lot of great things have been accomplished in the chapters we have studied so far in this series, Citizen Exiles. Great things have happened because of God's sovereign and merciful hand. So for purposes of review again, God's people had spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. It seemed that their identity as the people, their identity as God's people was torn to shreds. All seemed lost. And yet God had mercy on them. Around 539 B.C., around the 70th year of the exile, one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, King Cyrus of Persia, issued a decree to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. In the book of Ezra, we saw how against all odds and in the face of much opposition, they managed to rebuild the temple, which had been a charred pile of ruins. It was not easy. They had many setbacks and lots of opposition. There were periods of time when the work had stopped, it was delayed, uh, lots of opposition, lots of discouragement, and then there's always the issue of people's sin. Yet none of these obstacles could thwart God's good purposes. At the end of Ezra, we have a rebuilt temple. Hooray! But there's still a major problem. The city itself, and particularly its walls, are still a heap of ruins. Despite all the progress that has been made, the people are still very, very vulnerable. But the God of history is still in control. He moves on uh, King Artaxerxes to sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem. Nehemiah had told them what he had heard about what was going on in Jerusalem. He was very upset about it. King Artaxerxes sends him, gives him everything he needs for a major building project. And he pumps everyone up to rebuild the walls and set the gates and bars in place. And that's what happens. That's what has happened so far in Nehemiah. By the time of today's passage, the temple's built, the walls are built, but there's still a major problem. Much good work has been done. It seems that Nehemiah's work is about complete. He will need to get back to Susa and report back to King Artaxerxes, the one who sent him in the, to Jerusalem in the first place. You'd think it's time for him to take a victory lap. But the problem is that Jerusalem is sparsely inhabited. Very few houses are built. What was the point of the walls and the temple if the city of the great king is virtually empty? At least during that time in redemptive history, before Jesus came and before the age of the church, when God's presence would be known worldwide, Jerusalem in general, and the temple in particular, was the place where God was known to dwell, the place where he was to be properly worshipped. There isn't going to be a whole lot of worship going on if not many people are living in Jerusalem. Granted, of course, people would come for the annual appointed feast, but what about the rest of the time? Those amazingly built walls, and that was an amazing feat, 
aren't going to do a whole lot of good if there aren't enough people in the city to defend them. In the end, walls or no walls, it takes people to defend a city, and without people, you really don't have a city anyway. So before he goes back to Susa, Nehemiah knows he cannot rest on his laurels and take a victory lap. He appoints people to govern the city, and he gives specific instructions on how it's to be guarded, when the gates are to be opened and closed, etc. But that's not going to solve the problem of a sparsely inhabited Jerusalem. Look again at verse 5. He says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, and then there's that long, long, long list of names. We're going to find out in chapter 11 that the list of families who came was to serve as a basis for recruiting people to move to Jerusalem. Many of the people who lived out in the surrounding towns and countryside had already made great sacrifices by temporarily moving to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. But now, they were understandably wanting to go back to their family homes and their family lands and live the life that they intended to live. But some of them will be asked to sacrifice again by relocating to Jerusalem for the good of the city. You would think that it would be considered a major privilege to live in Jerusalem. Back during the exile, the people pined and longed for Jerusalem. You might be familiar with their feelings about Jerusalem from Psalm 137, where it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our, up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Well, it seems that right now, anyway, Jerusalem is not among the highest joys of many people. Of course, not everybody has to move to Jerusalem. And it was natural for many to want to live on their family lands in the surrounding towns and countryside. But for the sake of the future viability of Jerusalem, some would have to move to Jerusalem. And we will see that in chapter 11. So how does that apply to us? Well, recently I was looking at our new and improved website. The website of Living Hope Church, and many thanks to Ryan McKinney and Megan and M and Ryan Etherton and Sarah and perhaps others who have worked on it. It's looking good. This is what it says in the second paragraph of our homepage. It says, our intention is to put the local back into local church. We found that church life multiplies when members live a short distance from each other. Most of our members live in Crofton, Gambrels, Bowie, and Upper Marlboro along the Route 3 corridor. 
Of course, our original vision was to be a local church in Bowie, but many of us, and I think I was among the first, <laughs> started creeping up toward Gambrels. Tony and Sarah, bless their hearts, still live in Riverdale. They are trying very hard to move up this way, and they're still trying, and pray for them, okay? <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. It is healthy for the life of the church to live in close proximity to each other. So our life together revolves around more than just Sunday morning. Psalm 133 tells us, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, I hear some alarm bells going off. The few of you who live as far south as Upper Marlboro or maybe the outskirts of Baltimore, um, far be it from me to suggest that you need to move. Uh, perhaps you are needed to serve as outposts for our northern and our southern flanks. But should you feel led to move, I'm not going to argue with you, okay? All right, okay. Just saying. Okay, so the need to repopulate Jerusalem was one reason that Nehemiah was taking a look at the records of who had come back from Babylon a couple of generations prior. But there was another reason why he was looking back at those historical archives, which brings us to point two. Point two is we must remember our history, where we came from and where we are going. Nehemiah was looking at those historical archives because, well, because they were historical archives. As you read through long lists of names, you may find them rather dry, but they are nonetheless important because history is important. The long list of names of both Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 were themselves based on and cross-checked with genealogical records which were meticulously kept by the people of the day because it was important to have a clear and objective record of the history of God's covenant community. Throughout the Bible, historical accounts are repeated at least in summary form to remind God's people in each generation of their history. Now, the first recounting of history that was already known was the book of Deuteronomy. Moses found it necessary to write the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Because this was after 40 years in the wilderness, and most of the people, with the exception of Joshua, Caleb, and um, Aaron and himself, they had, they had all died in the wilderness. They had not seen, they had not lived in Egypt. They had not seen the miracles in Egypt. They had not seen the plagues. They had not seen the parting of the Red Seas. They needed to be told. Uh, the new generation needed to be told afresh of the history of their people, of God's merciful intervention in their lives, and God's law and covenant requirements. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. God's people 
would remind themselves of their history by actually singing it. Psalm 78 is just one of the few psalms in which people sang of the history of God's dealings with them. Okay, Psalm 78, verse 5, it says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And the rest of the psalm tells the not very happy history of the people's unfaithfulness, God's mercy and intervention on them. We see this even in the New Testament. When Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin on trumped-up charges of blasphemy, how did he defend himself? He engaged in a well-known recounting of the history of Israel, starting with the calling of Abraham. Here are a few key milestones that Stephen mentions in Acts 7, verses 2 and 3. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Verses 8 to 10. And he gave him the covenant, of the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Verses 17 to 22. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he brought up, was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And in verses 35 through 37, he says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who, who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And Stephen went on recounting Israel's history their sin and rebellion, and God's mercy and redemption. Now, it's kind of funny, because throughout most of this discourse, he probably had the Sanhedrin's full attention, and they were probably nodding in agreement, saying, yeah, that's right, there's nothing wrong with this guy, until 
he got to verse 51 when he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen used well-established history to confront the powers that be of his day. Unfortunately, that proved fatal for him because his very sound exegesis and practical application got him into trouble. Powers that be decided to stone him for speaking the truth. But they could not deny or silence the truth of what he was saying. Now, we've mentioned before that one of the reasons we're going through this series, Citizen Exiles, is to equip and guide us on how to navigate being citizens in a culture that is antithetical and hostile to the gospel and the kingdom of God. Now, it used to be that, although we could never say that this was a Christian culture, far, far from it, but at least there used to be a peaceful coexistence between the culture and Christianity. Well, not anymore. Doesn't seem that way. Too bad for the greater culture. As for us, what do we do? What do we need to do? We need to continue to stand firm in the truth, even as the culture attempts to redefine history and redefine truth. In the same way that the witch in the Chronicles of Narnia attempted to enchant and lull Prince Rillian, Puddleglum, Eustace, and Jill into thinking that there was never was a Narnia, there never was a sun, and there never was an Aslan, that it was all made up, a made-up story or a children's game. Of course, that was completely contrary to what they objectively knew to be true. The voices of the culture that we live in will attempt to rewrite history and redefine what is right and what is wrong. It will take work to stand firm in the truth. We need to be spending much more time in the word, much more time in prayer, and much more time remembering the history of God's dealings with his people. Not only what is recorded in scripture, but also in the history of the church throughout the ages. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. And we need to remember that history too. We need to spend much less time listening to the cacophony of voices in the communications and social media. And when we happen to be in that realm of the media, we must have a very discerning ear because it is a lot easier to get sucked up into groupthink, to get sucked up into newthink than you think it is. I'll give you a personal case in point. Well, a lot of my family members are, are much further to the left politically than I am, and that's fine. 
That is perfectly fine. I am not here to talk politics. But I was always certain that in the past, that despite political difference, our basic moral values were the same. One of them, which has come up in the news again recently, is the sanctity of human life and the need to protect the unborn. But apparently, a lot of my family members, we don't hold that in common anymore. Some people whom I love dearly have allowed their moral values to be eroded as they listen to the voices of their favorite politicians and their favorite pundits. That saddens me very, very much. Several years ago, I was a social media junkie. I even had my own blog, but I stopped writing blog posts probably because nobody was reading them anyway. I spent way too much time on Facebook. Two years ago, I suspended my account because of all the, all the political vitriol and hatred that I was seeing on Facebook. I even saw people whom I love dearly and even people whom I know to be Christians, people who should know better, starting to get sucked up into the fray. So I got off of Facebook. I was completely off of Facebook from around May 2020 to July 2021. I have to say, in retrospect, it's one of the best things I ever did. It was liberating. It was one of the most stress-free periods of my life. I did miss communicating with some people on Facebook, but again, it was so stress-free. It was wonderful. Last summer, I decided to put my toe back in the water so I could communicate with some people and also because Susan and I were in Italy and I wanted to share what a wonderful time we were having. So now my Facebook account is reactivated, but I spent very, very little time there. I rarely post anything and my posts are very benign, certainly nothing political. I even more rarely comment on other people's posts, particularly posts pushing someone's social political agenda. Believe me, it is very tempting, particularly when I see people I love or even Christians sharing or forwarding some meme that is utter nonsense. It is a real dilemma. Do I respond or not? It reminds me very much of the dilemma posed in Proverbs 26, verses 4 or 5. You might be familiar with it. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. What do you do? Now, don't, 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 don't hear what I'm not saying. I am loath to call anyone a fool. I, believe me, I know Jesus' warnings. Don't call people a fool. You're in danger of the fires of hell. And I know that I, too, am capable of saying and doing very foolish things. Okay? It is indeed possible for otherwise decent, intelligent, and godly people to be influenced by foolishness. In general... But particularly when we are on social media, we need to be very, very careful of what we say 
and also especially careful of what we listen to. Now, I think I've gone completely off topic, but that needed to be said. Point two was, we must remember our history, where we came from and where we are going. Here's point three. While the work continues, there is much sacrifice and much joy. The last portion of today's text described all the costly gifts that were given by individuals and families so the work could go forward. These were not just one-time gifts. As we've been reading over the last few months, there would be a lot of sacrifices of blood, sweat, and tears as people rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the walls. And as we have already mentioned, come chapter 11, people are going to be asked to make more sacrifices to relocate to Jerusalem and leave their preferred life in the countryside where they would probably rather live. It reminds me of some of us who were born and raised far from the suburbs of D.C. and Baltimore, who perhaps dreamed of someday going back to a more bucolic lifestyle where they were born and raised, perhaps closer to the family. I think of people like the McKinneys and the Ziffs who were from Pennsylvania. I think they have been captivated by a vision to live in gospel community with a specific group of people known as Living Hope Church. It reminds me of Adam and M, Evie and Dre, who sacrificed a very settled lifestyle and said goodbye to some longtime friends at Mercy Hill Church in Spotsylvania so that Living Hope Church could have a new senior pastor. I don't know everybody's story, but I'm sure there are plenty of others just like these. It also reminds me of two other people who were born and raised in rural Cecil County, Maryland, but moved to Prince George's County. They intended to stay just long enough to get a degree at the University of Maryland and then return to the idyllic lifestyle they had known back in Cecil County. But Leo and Sue ran into this place called Solid Rock Church, which eventually planted Living Hope Church. And ever since, they've been captivated by the vision of living in gospel community together with dear friends and fellow believers. It's been 43 years and counting. As I said, there are probably others. I think the Ethertons have been here just as long as we have. I don't know if they've dreamed of moving back to Idaho or not. They have, yeah. For us, and for all the pe people mentioned, yes, there has been some sacrifice, but the sacrifice is far outweighed by the joy of fulfilling God's call in our lives and walking in Christian fellowship with some very dear friends. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commands the blessing, even life forevermore. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your work here at Living Hope Church. Thank you that we have 
a history that is not just our history among us here at Living Hope Church in the here and now. Our history is based on your history. You are the God who created the heavens and the earth. You are the God who called a people to himself. You are God who led them by the hand and redeemed them. You are the God who condescended and became one of us and lived a perfect life, a sinless life. You are the God who allowed yourself to be nailed to a cross to take the penalty that was due us. And you are the God who rose again and you are the God who lives forever and who will one day call us home to be with you forever. We thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.